Hi, um, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the last of our creative writing sessions, creative writing workshops here at um, the LSE. Sorry, I just dropped my notes. Um, so uh, we're here at uh, the LSE's ninth Space for Thought Literary Festival, and this year it's around the theme of revolutions. Um, my name is Winnie Emily, and I'm a PhD researcher here, but I'm also a novelist. So I always get really excited when the LSE Literary Festival um, comes up because it's a chance for uh, this institution, which is often very focused on academic research, to kind of turn a more literary or more creative lens um, at looking at the world and trying to make sense of the world around us. Um, so we're really excited to have with us today for our last last workshop, um, the author Paul Cooper. Um, he was educated at the University of Warwick and at the University of East Anglia. And after graduating, he left for Sri Lanka to work as an English teacher, where he took time to explore the ruins, both ancient and modern, of Sri Lanka. He's written for magazines, websites, and also worked as an archivist, editor, and journalist. His debut novel, novel River of Ink, is out in paperback now, and it's available for purchase upstairs. Um, but today, um, for the next hour and 15 minutes, Paul will talk about what led him to dive into the world of ancient poetry and medieval Sri Lanka in order to write his novel, River of Ink. Um, so before I hand it over to him, um, just a few housekeeping notes. Um, if you're a Twitter user in the audience, um, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE LitFest. It's up on the screen. Um, if you could please put your phones on silent um, so as not to disrupt uh, the workshop. And this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. Um, obviously, as I said, after the workshop, um, you can ask your questions to Paul. There'll be a bit of a conversation, and um, the book will be available for sale upstairs, where Paul can sign it, and you can have a chat with him as well. Um, but right now, if you could join me in um, welcoming Paul um, to the table he's already sitting at with a round of applause. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's so great to be here and see so many of you here wanting to take an adventurous step in your writing and try to write outside the range of your experience. Uh, I'm going to read a little from my book to start off with. Um, this is River of Ink. It came out last year and just now in paperback uh, and was the product of about five years' research and writing. Uh, I'm going to read a little and then I'm going to give a short talk about what led me through these avenues of research uh, and... And, and how you can encompass a little bit of, of, of that, the, these adventurous steps in your own writing. And then we're going to try a little writing exercise. Um, I'm going to try and wander around and say hi to some of you while we're doing that. Uh, and you can see um, who, whether you get anything interesting or, or exciting out of that. Uh, and then we'll open it up for questions at the end and, and see what you guys want, want to know. Cool. Uh, so this book is um, tells the story of a court poet who finds himself suddenly working for a tyrannical king who ruled in Sri Lanka in the year, uh, from the year 1215. Uh, this poet is um, loosely based on Thomas Wyatt, and as he translates an ancient poem for this tyrant king, he uh, inserts his own changes and additions to the poem. And this leads to him becoming something of a reluctant revolutionary. So I'll just read a couple of pages from the first opening of the book. Do you remember the minor birds that used to live in the courtyard outside your room? On the day the city fell, they were all twittering louder than I'd ever heard them and flying from tree to tree in a flock. The noise was tremendous. While I watched them through the lattice, I was thinking about what would happen if the king had cords tied to each of their tails, how it wouldn't be long before the net they wove would wrap up the sky and black out the sun. There was a man out there, too, sitting beneath a shade tree with lamps lined up on a blanket, singing in a slow, cracked voice. You must remember this. You were sitting right there beside me, your back straight and your forehead furrowed, murmuring the letters to yourself as you cut them. You were a quick learner, and by then I didn't have to guide your hand, but I did sometimes because its back was smooth and freckled and cool to the touch. I would glance at your moving lips, too, and the winding, interlaced ribbons of hair that rolled down your back. That hair, I still dream of that hair sometimes. And when I do, it melds with my dreams of rivers, so I'm floating in it, then drowning. It was hot, and I was losing control of myself sitting so close, so I tried to watch the birds instead. You've been looking out there for so long, you said. What's so interesting? Just the birds, I said. Have you ever seen so many flocking inside the city? You didn't answer. I listened to the noise they were making and the sound of your stylus slicing paper, a scratching like the insects that burrow through the palace woodwork at night. 
a girl of your position should never have been writing. A man of my position should never have been teaching you. We both knew these things, and so fear was our constant third classmate. Sometimes, maybe once or twice a week, we would hear footsteps outside the door of your room or the sound of raised voices in the servant quarter outside, and we would hush each other. One of us would be overcome by panic, and then the other would always follow. We would fumble to pack everything away, the charcoal, stylus, oil, paper, cramming it into my bag, shoveling it under the table, and then the footsteps would pass, or the voices would start arguing, and we would catch sight of each other, hearts pounding, hands dirtied with charcoal dust and oil, and breathe out. But when the bells began to ring on that day, it was different. You didn't stop writing. You barely moved, and I'll always remember that. Even the birds outside faltered in the air, as though they knew the difference between the bronze bells in the temples and the heavy iron ones on the walls. Soon the bells were joined by shouting in the distance and the sound of hooves in a nearby street, but it didn't immediately occur to me what was going on. In the courtyard, the man stopped his singing. He wrapped up his lamps. Before long, some common people ran out of a door and down the street with their children. Then I could see the king's soldiers out on the main road. It was then that I knew. Karlingamag, the man they were calling the Demon King, had arrived. So as I've said, um, my first novel, River of Ink, came out in January of 2016. And for a few years before its release, I worked as a journalist in London. And if the conversation with my co-workers ever turned to my work as a writer, uh, they sometimes asked me what I was writing. And I would always reply that I was writing a book about a journalist living in London and struggling with the incompetence of his co-workers. <laughs> I would always describe the main villain as exactly matching their description. Oh, yeah, he's the a guy who works in finance, and he's always, you know, ruining my life. Not everyone realized it was a joke, but if they did, it was because we all know that stereotype of writers, that they only write what they experience. And we all heard that classic piece of workshop wisdom, write what you know. And I've never found it to be very good advice. A.S. Byatt. I forgot about this. <laughs> it's the whole side of things. A.S. Byatt once said that every one of her novels began when two of her current obsessions turned out to be the same obsession. For me, this happened in my first year of my undergraduate study. I'd spent a year or so obsessed with a curiosity for ancient Indian epic poetry. I read everything I could about the Mahabharata, a poem of about 1.8 million words long, written around 800 BC. Poems like the Megaduta and the Ramayana, the story of Rama's quest to Sri Lanka to find his stolen wife. To my young self, these sprawling tales of family rivalries, loves and battles, magic and demons seemed endlessly fascinating. Strange episodes accumulate and confuse the modern reader. The honorable Drona forcing Ekalavya to cut off his thumb for making an effigy of him out of mud. Or the noble wife, Draupadi, who has won in an archery contest and then married to five brothers at once because the brothers promised to always share their winnings. I didn't know I would end up writing a novel about these things or including these things, but the next obsession came while studying the early modern poet, Thomas Wyatt, who many of you may be familiar with if you study literature. Wyatt was a resident poet to the court of King Henry VIII and made a living translating Petrarch's sonnets from Italian into the then common and non-literary language of English. What really fascinated me was that in his translations, Wyatt seems to have hidden secret messages criticizing Henry and hinting at his love for Anne Boleyn. For Wyatt, these small acts of rebellion seemed to constitute something desperately necessary. And who would suspect him of writing these things? After all, he was only a translator. These obsessions quickly combined and the story of River of Ink seemed to come ready-made. The period and setting chose itself. I discovered that in the year 1215, a foreign king had come to power in the island nation of Sri Lanka. A king who's remembered as a figure similar to the Emperor Caligula, or our own King John, a despot de detested by his people. The ancient chronicles of Sri Lanka describe him as a man who held to a false creed, whose heart rejoiced in bad statesmanship, who was a fire in the forest of good. So the story of River Rink flowed from there. I would imagine the life of a court poet suddenly forced to work for this king. At first, naively, I worked from photographs and videos, maps and ancient chronicles, 
And I wrote the story as I researched, often taking cues about what might happen next from things I found in, in my research. At every point, I tried to relate it to my own relatively small experience. Of course, I'd never been the court poet to a king, but didn't I have experience of staying up all night to hand in assessments before a deadline, as I'm sure you all have as well. I'd never known what it was like to work for a sociopathic despot, but like everyone, I've worked for some really shitty bosses. And this is how you write what you don't know. In every scene, no matter how distant from your own experience, you find a way to relate it to what you have experienced. When I reached the limits of what I could achieve with only research, I managed to find a placement at a whole country school in Sri Lanka. I'm just going to show you my holiday snaps from here on. <laughs> where I, I could live for free in exchange for teaching English. And I quickly learned that everything I'd written about the country from secondary sources was, if not entirely wrong, quite a way off the mark in just about every particular. I realized that I would have to rewrite just about everything. This kind of experiential research is always incredibly important. While there I often spent mon months without speaking to another foreigner, I learned to speak and read in Singhala, the majority language of the island, and I learned a corpus of its endless proverbs and sayings. As, as people there delight in saying, when you're in the house of a bat, you must hang from the ceiling. <laughs> Over the next months, I was able to explore the ruins of Polonaro and the temples and bathhouses and palace ruins. I made sketches and drew maps. I made friends at the museum and I filled notebooks with as much as I could. It's important to remember that no matter how deep your research, readers may open a book for an interesting setting or a period of history that they've never encountered before, but they stay and read till the end because of the characters, because the story is situated in the struggle of someone they identify with. So no matter... Yeah, we want to feel born along with the characters' trials. What a writer has to achieve when transporting their stories to another place or time is to make them feel just as real as they would if they happened in front of our eyes. When people begin writing historical fiction, they often make the mistake of trying to make the past feel more pasty, to affect an antique sound to the character's speech, and to constantly add details with the sole purpose of signifying that the story is still set in the past. Actually, our challenge is much greater than that. It's to set our own experiences in a different era or place and make them seem immediate and real, as though these people are your friends and they're sitting in front of you telling stories. What attracted me to epic poems like the Mahabharat in the first place wasn't just their epic stories and colorful episodes. It was the common idea among devotees that once you've finished reading them, you come out the other side a changed person. Writing does this to you too. Writers are professional obsessives. We're paid to follow our obsessions and translate them for our readers. That piece of advice, write what you know, can sound restrictive, prohibitive, but within it, it contains a grain of surprising optimism. Because ultimately, if your curiosity is great enough and you work hard enough, you can end up knowing just about anything in the world. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. I hope that wasn't too rambling. I thought we could have a go ourselves at this writing exercise. And then after, we'll, op we'll open up for questions. So I thought we could try and take a moment from your life, an experience that sits in your memory as being vivid, as being a moment you met a challenge, a moment you, were, you felt a particular emotional intensity, Think about when you felt afraid or experienced a sudden moment of bravery in yourself or a friend. It could be when you heard a piece of bad news or had to deliver it to someone else. But feel free to take this in whatever direction you want. I, I want you to set this moment either in a completely other place, a place you've perhaps never been, or another time that you've only ever imagined, but always imagined with a particular intensity. You can take it completely elsewhere in the world or completely elsewhere in history or both. And take notice of how this moment's affected by its transportation. How has your relationship changed to this experience? And did it become easier to write or harder? Maybe give 15 minutes or so? Yeah, that sounds good.
Maybe come and say hi to some of you and see how you're working as we go. Okay, yeah, maybe we can um, wrap it up wherever's comfortable. How, how did people find that? Did maybe like show of hands, did, did anyone find it really difficult or, or really like counterintuitive? Yeah, kind of smattering of hands. Did anyone find they find it really productive, like they found something like, unusual or unexpected came out of it? Cool, yeah, that's about a typical, typical balance. Nice. Um, yeah, maybe we can open things up for questions. Uh, yeah, I mean, or uh, is my mic? Yeah, it's on. Okay. Um, I guess uh, I wanted to actually kind of go back and ask you a few questions about about the book because it's fascinating yeah, to yeah. open up more about writing process. Because I mean, the way you described it from from your kind of your early your fascination with um, this medieval poetry and the epics, um, and then deciding trying to do the research secondhand, mm. looking at old maps. And then deciding to go to Sri Lanka and actually live there, um, almost in this sort of like deep immersive experience, which then fueled your writing. But how, how long was that whole process? Because I mean, it sounds like it was years in the making, from your first fascination to then developing the idea for the novel to then doing kind of the first-hand research. And then, how long did you do the majority of the writing when you came back here after you left Sri Lanka? Or had it, I'm just kind of curious to see how that worked out in terms of the time frame. Yeah, from from um, inspiration to finished manuscript, it yeah. was the best part of about five years. Um, okay. So I think I had a finished draft after one year. Um, I lived in Sri Lanka for a year, and uh, the rest was just editing and rewriting. It was um, u- using materials I'd collected and um, further research, uh, just putting together a finished manuscript. I also studied on the uh, prose fiction MA in the UEA, which is quite an intensive workshopping experience. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that helped the manuscript along as well. Uh, I studied on the prose fiction MA at the UEA, the University of East Anglia. Mm. Um, so after you got back from Sri Lanka, did you go straight into the the MA course? Um, Just about, yeah. Okay. Mm. Wow. Okay. And then by the end, and the, it was a one one year course, and by the end of it, did you have a finished manuscript, effectively, or? Yeah, just about. I um, I moved to London after that, okay. and I I was at, at the. In the sort of pit of despondency with the with the project, yeah, yeah, um, which I've, I've I don't know if people that. have encountered yeah. that. Before, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think the, the the nice thing about the pit of despondency is it usually means you're nearly finished. Okay. Um, if anyone can take kind of comfort in that, uh, yeah. I I met an agent uh, who wanted to read some of the book, and I said, no, no, it's not finished yet. And uh, they said, fine, send it when it's finished. Uh, I spent the next couple of months just working nine to five and editing the book around around that. You know, w- waking up early in the morning and. I'm trying to do as much as I could at night, um, just to, to get a finished manuscript, really. Yeah. From there. Yeah. And then, and you mentioned this pit of despondency, which I think is like anything any writer feels at mm. various points. Um, and if it was a five-year arc, how did your, how, how did you kind of keep up the not the momentum, I suppose, although that obviously you're going to need momentum to get a novel finished. But how did you keep up like the, the your own spirit in some ways, <laughs> especially when there were moments of despondency? Um, and yeah. was you know were your friends and family really supportive? Was it just that you were so obsessed with this? kind of material that, that kept you driving um, forward. I'm um, just kind of curious to know about your emotional rea- um, relationship with the work. Yeah, it's, um, yeah a, a lot of that, I think. I mean, you know, when you tell people you're, you're writing a novel, they look at you as though you're, you've said, I hear voices. You know? it's kind of, <laughs> uh, that's kind of their reaction. They're like, oh, really? Um, <laughs> and it's actually a kind of similar thing, that you, know, that you have this uh, thing sitting in the back of your head, these characters that you've got to know, but only you know, only you've ever met, um, which is a very strange experience. Uh, And I I think you should never push yourself through a project that isn't working. And Most writers will have projects abandoned around 10,000 to 15,000 words, some even later, unfortunately. Um, But if you feel something about a project that just doesn't let go of you, then that's the one that you want to pursue till the end, and and that's when I think you really know you have something going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I have two questions about the process. Mm. You said that um, when you initially started, when you were still uh, in England before you went to Sri Lanka, you wrote it as you researched it. Yeah. Um, which sounds like, uh, you, did you let the characters tell you what they were doing, or did you have some idea of scope and outline at that point? And then you said when you got to Sri Lanka, you had to rewrite the whole thing. Mm. So I'm kind of wondering what you discovered um, that made you feel, you know, it, just some particulars of what happened that made you feel you had to do that. 
Yeah, can I think of an interesting example of something I changed? Um, I think a lot of, uh, just so much of the experiential, experiential research, like you know, the feeling of, of the air in a particular season or the way, uh, the, way the city must have looked at, at a certain time. I spend a lot of time going through these ruins, which, which are an enormous UNESCO World Heritage Site, and just trying to mentally recreate, uh, doing automatic writing, just trying to recreate what the city might have looked like uh, 800 years ago. Um, yeah, I, in, in terms of researching while you're writing, uh, I think to write a book before you start, you should probably have read about 10, say, other books, um, just to get your corpus of information going. Um, I think by the end, you should have probably read about 100 books, or at least the best part of that, um, in order to, to really understand your topic. You should have done more or less a, a PhD's worth of, of research into a novel. Uh, unfortunately. Um, and I, I think whenever you reach like the dreaded writer's block moments when you, know, you can spend a month or two really not knowing what's going to happen next, you, you get stuck. Uh, that's when you really have to return to the, the research. And more often than not, the answer to where the story goes next is, is in there. I wondered how the um, the unfolding political situation and mm. just seeing the lives of the people around you in Sri Lanka, how did that affect what you were writing and, and your novel? Yeah, it, it had a, a big effect. Uh, uh, for people who aren't familiar with the situation in Sri Lanka in 2009, the civil war there came to an end, which was a separatist struggle for the north of the island. Uh, but there's also been a lot of... Um, uh, political unrest on the level of um, kind of socialist versus government uh, insurgency over the last 30 to 40 years. Um, wh one of the main things that, that made me want to write about this king in particular was that he was a despot. Uh, and the, the Buddhist chronicles of Sri Lanka fastidiously record all of the king's lives and, and the different reigns. Uh, but they're very fair to a lot of the foreign rulers, and there are many foreign rulers in Sri Lankan history. But this king, they devote pages and pages to describing how terrible he is, just what a horrible guy he was. <laughs> and they particularly mention the burning of books, which really struck me, you know, as someone who loves literature, and also just how modern a, a, a crime this was, a, a despotic act. And when I was speaking to people in Sri Lanka, one of, the, one of my best friends there, who I stayed with for a little while, he had been around during... Um, these, these periods of uprising when those military crackdowns and he relayed a story to me uh, that soldiers had gone through through the village and they'd gone through people's houses and found any books that um, were, were socialist in nature and they'd piled them all at the crossroads and set fire to them and they didn't come to his house but the moment the soldiers left his father came through into his room took all of his books and took them into the backyard and burned them just saying you know this, this isn't worth 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 yeah this isn't worth us having. And something about that, the way you can make people burn their own books, uh, really struck me and, and became a, something of a theme later in the book. Mm. Sorry, that was a bit rambly. I hope that answered your question. Uh, this lady here, yeah. Hi, um, I just wondered, where do you think um, sort of factual research ends and fiction begins? Because um, essentially... Do you feel some sort of responsibility to the place and the period and things like that? Because um, it seems to be a thing that a lot of writers are saying now. So if they're representing, I don't know, women, they say, I have to represent the truth of women's experience. Or if they're representing people of a certain ethnicity, they say, I need to represent the truth. Mm. But do you think there is room for poetic license? And would you feel okay about making things up completely? And if so, where do you, which gaps do you find to make things up completely in? Sorry. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Uh, I think as we're finding in our world today that the truth is a really elusive thing, uh, and, and any act of writing is by, by nature a lie about something. Even if we try and describe it exactly as we experienced it, it's still a fictionalization and therefore abstracted from the truth. Uh, as a historical novelist, I think you do have um, a, a big commitment to representing things as close as, as you can um, how they might have been, because readers come to the novel with that expectation. They want to try and experience what it must have been like to live at that time and, and in that place. Um, as a novelist, you don't have the luxury of the historian uh, who can say, well, we're not quite sure about what happened here. Maybe 
things happened this way, or maybe they happened this way, maybe this date was correct, or maybe it was that one. As a novelist, you have to sometimes feign a kind of confidence that you knew exactly what happened. Um, so you can, come, you can find yourself coming down quite artificially on sides of debates that really aren't settled in history. Um, but that's just, that's just the novel having its own demands and having to plot an actual plot, an actual course through this kind of cloud of historical possibility. Yeah, that's always a difficult call. Um, I wanted to go back to your exercise, last point. Yeah. Um, the first sentence um, is in the passive, so I've tried to put it around in the active. Yeah. Um, it's transportation affects, um, affects this moment. Um, the assumption here, and in the second sentence, uh, and, and, and third, is that there is some kind of movement. Was it harder or easier to write in reference to what? Because this experience I'm not aware of has moved or been transported anywhere. Okay. So um, I'm lost. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, maybe other people could express what they thought about that. Did other people find it that there was something that changed in their relationship to this experience? So when I was trying to think of one experience um, that I thought could lend itself to a scene in a different time or a different place, I was struggling because if it was an emotionally intense one, I found that I, mm. if I wrote it, I didn't want to transport it any, anywhere else. I didn't want to sully it with the lie of giving it a different name or a different yeah. setting. Um, and even when I found one that I thought, okay, this one I'm going to try and change a little, I found myself scratching the changes and bringing them <laughs> back. So if it was a woman, no, no, it has to yeah. be a man. Or if it was a child, I was like, oh, maybe I can make it someone also vulnerable, an older woman. But no, it has to be a child. So I found myself just be wanting to be very truthful to that experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, just, I was just wondering if that was something that you had experienced um, in terms of trying to transpose your own experiences to your writing, and mm. if you had that kind of inner struggle. Yeah, that's a very interesting ex experience, <laughs> so thanks for sharing. Uh, I think that says yeah, something about the, the way you, you approach your work as a writer, and um, I think that's been a good thing to learn about yourself, that, you, that, that, that you're trying to express something about your truthful experience in the way you write. Um, just from my own experience, I think writing about somewhere very distant and in, in both place and time it, it makes me feel freer than, than trying to write about the world around me, um, which I find very difficult. I'm not quite sure I've discovered the source of that in myself, but um, maybe one day. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, and actually just to sort of, I guess, uh, piggyback on, on that, thank you. Yeah. Um, I think there's also a difference between being truthful or honest in the details and being truthful and honest in the experience or the emotional intensity of it. Yeah. So I think that's one approach that I think maybe, make, maybe will make this harder or easier for some people to just sort of take the core of the emotional experience. And rather than saying, okay, this needs to be a man or a woman, just know this needs to be a, a really intense feeling of disgust. Mm. And that needs to come through. And I think that's sort of an interesting um, thing that I took from, from this, from that uh, prompt. Yeah, right, the kind of emotional skeleton of the scene almost. I had two, two quick questions. One, w mm. well, one was, um, how did you have the faith to keep going through that mm. time? Because you obviously didn't let the agent read it until you'd finished it. So how did you know, and it's your first novel, like, how did you know it was worth doing? And it, how did you pursue it in that? In that? And then the second um, is a bit is linked to the exercise. I, I'm also a journalist, and so I find it you know, easier to write about what I see and know and what people do and tell me. And the idea of making stuff up is, is, is hard. So, you know, going back to you write about what you know, but you can transpose that. So, like, this exercise, I, was, I don't know, I was going to write about childbirth because, you know, that's, like, an intense experience. But it could happen any, in a different place or a different time, um, you know. But then, so then I found I was just writing about my own experience, actually, and it didn't really matter. You just bung in a bit. I don't know. But, but, um, <laughs> so, but my, question, my question really was, you know, as a writer of fiction, do you find it's more authentic and reads better and feels better 
when it is really rooted in this something that's happened or real or an experience, or when you're freer just to make it up, because it's a debate I've been having, an argument I've been having with my husband, so I was just curious on your perspective about it. Uh, yeah, I'll try and answer those separately. Um, I think that the idea of faith in the project is maybe misleading, and, and it's more the idea that, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, something about it is, is still kind of scratching at you, and um, there's still, you still have a feeling of like the authentic... Uh, sort of like pain that the, the idea of the project caused you to start with and that hasn't quite been, uh, been, been wiped away somehow. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, uh, I don't think I've expected anyone to want to read this book, uh, but I, I loved writing it and, and it seemed like a very worthwhile thing to do. So. Uh, I, th- I hoped I would be, it would be, but I never held out much hope, I think, um, because it's such a strange yeah. setting and subject and like an yeah. unlikely... Long shot, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a lesson in there somewhere. Uh, and in terms of the second question, I've sort of forgotten what the second question was. Oh right. Well, naturally, you, you do have to imagine so much uh, when you're writing, um, and even if you can't relate something to your own experience, I think it's really important to find someone who has had a similar experience. Uh, I think at the end of the day, it's it's kind of a travesty that there's only one name on the cover of the book, and my acknowledgments page goes, you know, runs for pages, just because of how many people helped me all, all along the way, how many people shared their experiences on so, so many different fronts. Um, so yeah, I think as, as close as you can, bring it back to something true. Yeah. This lady here, her hand up. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much for this exercise. I was wondering um, whether during the writing of your novel you used um, exercises like these, like this, um, so snippets yeah, of um, creative writing exercises um, and whether that helped your process. And also, um, would you recommend a particular book uh, with creative writing exercises or a website or a list, um, anywhere else, and also, and then I'll stop, (laughs) Um, what other um, one or two examples of exercises have you found particularly useful? Yeah, uh, that's a collection of really good questions. Uh, I don't use exercises this formally in my work. What I do a lot of is automatic writing, or free writing it's also known as, which is kind of uh, starting every day or starting a writing session with just free association writing, writing as fast as you can without worrying about if things are making sense or, or if you're you know, telling a cohesive narrative. It gets your, your mind really into the, the process of, um, of creating writing. And I find when I'm in, kind of in situ, when I'm on, on the ground doing research, that's an incredible way to just map down all of your sensations and, and, and feelings in a particular place. I, I'm very bad at taking real notes, I just do this free association writing wherever I am. Something I've been, um, I've been teaching creative writing a little bit this, this term, and something I find really effective is a really crazy sounding exercise, which is to take, uh, say, four pieces of writing, it could be non-fiction, it could be, uh, you know, poetry, you know, fiction, whatever, uh, just tear it up. This is a Ulipian technique uh, that was uh, used in, in the 60s by kind of avant-garde poets. Just tear it up, put it back on the table, mix it around and just try and read some of the, the unusual and, and strange associated words that, that you pick out. And you can come up with some incredibly beautiful images, some really unlikely and surprising couplings of, of, of words and, and phrases. Um, it sounds nuts, but try it out and you'll be surprised by what you get. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, I don't really know about writing exercises. Um, you should read James Wood, uh, How Fiction Works, and for a structure side of things, Robert McKee's story as well. Those are two Bibles. Uh, Robert McKee, M-C-K-E-E, and it's just called Story. Uh, over here, there were some questions? Or? So I learned something uh, from your writing exercise, and also it's something that disturbs me when I try to pen down things. And I wonder how um, 
do you manage your own emotions and flows? Because when you are trying to depict something, some character or some event or some instance, how do you try to do justice to your writing? Mm. Because there's, there's, there's you yourself are a complex mechanism who has complex feelings and engagement with that yeah. character or event. How do you manage that flow? Thank you. Yeah, that's an interesting question with a lot of layers. Uh, yeah, I think it is hard, especially if you're writing uh, with quite dark material. Um, my next novel is um, yeah has a lot of violence to it, and it's been sort of unsettling, spending so much time in that kind of imaginative space, uh, and it, it can affect your mood sometimes. Um, that yeah, I think you just need self care. You need to be be kind to yourself, not try to push yourself too often into into places that. Uh, are uncomfortable or unpleasant, um, but also allow your own em emotional responses to the work to feed back into your writing and, and to become increasingly authentic that way. I think. Does that kind of answer your question? Mm. And then this way here. Um, you talk about kind of the experiences and how much you know um, and kind of like relating to your work. Yeah. Um, before going out to do field work, how much planning would you recommend having done? And how much you know, can you go out and travel somewhere mm. and then kind of collect the research as you're going and then formulate a story and a piece of writing? Uh, yeah, I've never done it that way, but I absolutely, I'm sure you can. Um, I've always found it better to know exactly what aspects of a particular situation or setting I'm wanting to use. Uh, when I went to Sri Lanka, I knew that my book would be set in Polonaro, which was the uh, medieval capital, so I just spent weekends go, you know, taking the train to Polonaroa and eventually managed to find a school there that I could teach at uh, and, and you know, some friends that I could mm -hmm. stay with and so on. Yeah. Um, so I was able to really target the research in, in that way. I think if you want to go and do research in order to get inspiration, it can definitely work that way. Because um, a problem I have is I do a regular amount of traveling, yeah. but often I'm out in the place mm. when I'm getting ideas, kind of what sort of questions should I be asking? before I go to develop something. Yeah, that's really interesting. For me, like, language is, uh, is the absolute core of a research. So um, you know, learning the language of a, of a particular country if you're wanting to write about it. Um, you know, com languages carry with them whole thought systems and whole metaphorical uh, sets, you know, whole ways of thinking. And I think learning the language should be the absolute first step. Uh, and from there, just yeah, get to know people and find what's important to them. Mm. Thank you. I thank you for letting me have another question. Um, as a journalist yeah. uh, that you are, I wonder if you were especially aware that there would be um, heirs to the real characters that appear in the book or mm. scholars who would be combing every word and taking you to task, <laughs> lawsuit maybe even. Was that a concern yeah. and how did you work around that? Well, first of all, I was never a very good journalist, um, I must admit. But, uh, yeah, I think as you write, you have a number of readers sitting on your shoulder, uh, and there are often extremes of certain kinds of reader. So I have a very short attention span reader who likes fast-paced things and gets bored very quickly, uh, and so I'm trying to please him. I have the uh, eminent scholar of Sri Lankan history, um, and also you know, Indian mythological expert also sitting on my shoulders, trying to please them, uh, and... You, yeah, you sort of cut a middle ground. I really expected people to be writing letters to the Times or, or whatever, um, but it hasn't happened. And I think people are actually much kinder to you than, than you'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You said it's not necessary to kind of write what you know, but then mm. the fact that you kind of decided actually doing all this research online, you know, immersing myself in Google Maps, whatever, isn't yeah. enough. I do have to get there. Mm. At what point does it not become enough and you do have to, if not know it fully, at least experience mm. something of it. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. What my, one of my teachers in the UEA uh, said something which I don't quite agree with, but he said, you probably could have written this book without going to Sri Lanka, but you wouldn't have had the confidence to, uh, which I think is, there's some truth to that. Uh, and I think when you go, when you go and research on the ground, what you do is build up an entire 
corpus of information that doesn't really make it to the book, that just allows you to situate the research that does make it in, in the proper I- important place. Um, I suppose it might depend on when you're going to be factual or feature as well. Yeah. The emotion is so necessarily in the future. Mm. To feel like yourself. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Thanks. My, uh, my question is actually about your current project. Is there something that uh, has fascinated you after Sri Lanka so that uh, you are now working on it or at least thinking about it? Uh, yeah, I'm just coming to the, the end of a second novel, um, which is uh, sort of a convoluted story about how I got into writing about it. But while I was living in London, I worked a second job as an archivist, and I was uh, archiving the work of a novelist called Russell Hoban, who died in 2009, and left behind an enormous, strange collection of letters and, and manuscripts. And uh, he was obsessed with uh, uh, this freeze of... Um, an Assyrian king hunting lions that you can find in the British Museum. Has anyone kind of gone to see that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to drop by there later on, I think. Um, <laughs> and so I've, um, I've been writing a story set half in ancient Mesopotamia and half in modern Iraq. Uh, so, yeah, I've now been, been to Iraq a couple of times and um, done some field work there. Uh, so that's the next project. Thank you. Very interesting. Actually, I think it's very brave that you... Um, are willing to write for so ancient things because it definitely requires a lot of like credibility of the research. Mm. So yeah. Yeah, I find it really diff- different uh, with uh, Sri Lankan history. We actually know so much about you know who was ruling at what point and what the uh, great events of, of the time were, but the details of everyday life are harder to come by. Whereas with Mesopotamia, it's a it's a different story altogether. We have a lot about the everyday life. You know, we have letters and contracts and. Um, you know, letters from, from children complaining to their fathers that they don't have a nice enough wool coat and that all their friends have a better one. Uh, we have letters from a servant um, complaining to his master that a lion has got into the attic and that he's had to lock the lion in. And, and then another later letter saying, please, I haven't had a reply from you and I've had to be feeding the lion. And, um, <laughs> but but where, the, where the actual events in the chronology of history is a little more difficult to, to maintain and historians have a lively debate about that. Uh, so it's kind of been the opposite in terms of that. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I would like to. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, I would like to know your approach towards overcoming writer's block. Yeah, I think. Well, um, I don't know if there's one real tip for that. I think going back to your research is always a good tip. Uh, I think trying to. Whenever I have writer's blog, it's because I don't know what's coming next, and I've written myself into a corner, uh, or I've in some way lost the joy of the project. Uh, and I think often just going back and doing some serious editing, trying to work out the logic at the heart of, of the scene or a certain character's struggle, trying to work out what the metaphors you've been using up until this point have been saying and what the, what the arc of, of the story is. If you begin with metaphors of confinement, you should end with metaphors of freeing. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, and just thinking about your work in those terms, I think, always jolts me out of a rut. But it's just a reality of the writing life, really, that you do get stuck sometimes, and you can just put something away and work on another project for a bit, or, um, or read also. That's good. Yeah. Got two questions, actually. Mm. Um, first one is, you mentioned before that you didn't expect the book to be published. Mm. But then you had an audience in mind because you had one type of reader on one shoulder and a type of reader on the other shoulder. So you must have expected this book to be read Mm. for someone. So my first question is basically how do you, when you write a book, how do you, um, do you do it with an intended audience? Do you do it for yourself? And how does that influence what you write? And especially when it's a process that takes five years, mm. you must be th- thinking about the structure and how it's balanced and who is intended for. Yeah. yeah, that's the first question. And the second one is, how did you manage to write something, um, write the rest of your book when you were managing a nine-to-five job? Mm. Uh, yeah, I've never written as little as when I worked a nine-to-five job. Mm. It was really difficult. Uh, and also, 
I think as someone who uh, you know, studied English literature, I did creative writing masters, uh, and I thought, right, I'm going to the world of work, I want to be able to write and use that skill, uh, which is actually a complete mistake, uh, because you spend all day just writing and um, writing articles uh, on a computer, and when you get home, the last thing you want to do is just get back on a computer and, and write more. Um, so that would be the one tip I have about that. Uh, in terms of thinking about an ideal audience, uh, it's really difficult to do. For me, like the different readers is like a good structure of, of thought for me to uh, try and please all the different potential readers. But I think one of them... Do you not feel that might betray mm. your story? Sorry, say that again? Do, not feel, do you feel that that might betray your story, the fact that you're play, trying to please an audience? I think trying to please an audience is, is kind of at the heart of what a writer's trying to do, is trying to entertain people and bring them something that's, that's beautiful in some way or... Um, that they identify with and they can see themselves in. Um, yeah, I think I would always think about when I think of the project at its ideal state, like the best book it could be, um, I envisaged that and tried to write towards that rather than trying to you know, um, veer between different uh, potential readers. And I also thought about the worst thing that the book could be and tried to avoid that. Um, so that was really the, my main driving force, I think. Yeah. Is there any other... Is there anyone that hasn't asked a question yet? Because there's some repeat... Uh, okay, that fellow up there hasn't asked a question yet. Um, so five years is quite a long time. How yeah. do you keep the tone consistent? I mean, I'm just thinking mm. about how, how much more life has changed and on a summer's day, you might be all up and optimistic and that's the kind of voice. <laughs> and Trump and Brexit. And yeah. It's your dying car crash. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the main challenges, I think. Um, yeah, they, they say you should, there are two things you should never see made, which is uh, laws and sausages. Um, and I think like novels you could add to that as well. Um, that it's an incredibly messy process. And often a book um, doesn't find its proper voice until thirty to 40,000 words through. Um, and there'll be points when you just hit a certain scene that makes the whole thing suddenly make sense to you in some way. Uh, when you reach that point of habitually writing in a certain voice, um, you then go back and make sure everything's consistent. Uh, it's not a very pretty process, but uh, that's how it's done, I think. Yeah. Um, since we're on the question of voice, I mean, you read that section and it was first person... Mm past, is it, all, is it one narrator throughout that entire book, or do you, do you change points of view, do you change tense as well, or I'm just kind of... Yeah, it's, it's, it's all narrated by this one character, the poet, um, writing to his, uh, to, to, to this woman. Um, but there are occasional sections where someone is leaving behind these mysterious stories for him, that are mm. told, telling the story of the poem that he's translating back to him in a way that he finds very distasteful and unpleasant. Okay, um, yeah. So that's quite interesting. There's, like, intertextuality. There's, he himself is a writer, but then there's fragment. There's elements of other text that somebody else has written that he's yeah, encountering. Yeah. And is that sort of element of intertextuality and, you know, storytelling within mm. the actual story, is that present in your upcoming novel as well? Um, yeah, I'm yeah, working a lot with the epic of Gilgamesh, the Gilgamesh epic. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I love stories about art and stories about storytelling uh, and I keep getting drawn back to that mythological frame. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, are there, I think, um, to, and actually we have time for like three more questions. Uh, okay, here's a repeat um, and there's another fellow over there. Okay, so why don't we just, ha can we ask all three at the same time? Yeah. Not obviously at the same time, but like right after each other. <laughs> um, no. be, and then if you want to kind of answer all of them. Quick fire round. Yeah. Very quickly. Um, I actually found the, the writing exercise quite easy, and the reason was because I was writing from my own experience, and the person could be the same age as me and have had the same range of experience. But I think what would have made it really hard is if I tried to write something from the perspective of, say, like a 76-year-old Scotsman. Yeah. And um, that would be another transposition in time, which I think would be much, much harder to do. Mm. Would you say that I shouldn't bothered writing a novel from that perspective, um, say if I was going to write one, and I should stick with the realm of my own sort of personal experience, or do you think there'd be ways I could overcome that sort of just personal barrier? Um, 
Uh, yeah, abs absolutely. Write about a 76-year-old man if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> if you felt there was something about that character that, you, that yeah, so you felt it was unresolved, a mystery about them that you wanted to, to discover, or an insight you had about them, um, you know, at, at, our, at our heart, we, we have a, a very common, you know, humanity. Not to sound all kind of sunshine and rainbows about it, but but everybody has the same, you know, you know basic, you know, loves and fears and, and so on. And if you can find a, a way to the heart of that, then you can definitely write about it from that character's perspective. So we do two questions right after each other, and that that's going to be the last questions. But you can speak to Paul after as well. Yeah, sure. So, so when you finished writing this book, mm. um, and it was kind of the products of your life until that point. Did you then feel a void and you were now like, <laughs> is there, like I've written everything that has been my life until this point, what's next? Did you, did you kind of feel something like that? Yeah, there's definitely a kind of uh, book postnatal depression uh, where you've been, you've been living with these characters for so long and, and suddenly they, they kind of flee away from you, like your kid's going off to school for the first time. Um, we get the other question in really quickly. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to ask? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I kind of dive back into another project quite quickly. Um, but it's nice being kind of drawn back to these characters that are sort of like old friends. Um, so you mentioned in your current project that you're just finishing is set over two very different time periods. Yeah. How have you found the struggle of having the split narrative? And in particular, when you were writing it, did you write it sort of chapter by chapter, or did you do sort of all the old stuff at the same time and sort of not let it interrupt your flow of that narrative? Yeah, it's been very difficult, and at times I've written it in an intertwined way, and at times I've written them as separate novellas. Um, again, it's a very messy process, uh, and yeah, I think it's coming together into something that feels quite cohesive. Uh, I've seen this done very badly in the past, and, and those examples are things I go to to try and avoid the mistakes that those writers make. Um, I think whenever there's an intertwined narrative, the danger is that uh, the reader gets bored in one of them. They, they kind of drum their fingers while they're waiting to get back to the one they're excited about. And often that's the one the writer didn't really enjoy writing as much as the other one. Um, that's a mistake I've been really trying to avoid. And, yeah. Great. Well, I think, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for questions. Um, really looking forward to your next um, work. When it's, so is, do you know when it's going to be coming out yet, or is it too... Oh, there's no time to for it. I'd okay. like it to be uh, within a year, I think. Okay, all right. Well, so that's within a year, his second novel is going to be coming out, but River of Ink yeah. is available on sale right now. Um, it's upstairs, and Paul's going to be upstairs as well. Um, so you can ask him more questions, um, and also he'll, he's happy to sign the books. Um, but I hope you enjoyed this workshop. Um, this is, I think, the final day of our literary festival, but if you could please join me in thanking um, Paul Cooper.